The world has enough oil, but not enough refineries to process it. And that's the assessment from the biggest crude exporter, Saudi Arabia. So is this to blame for record high fuel prices? And what are the solutions? I'm Nastasia Tay, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's now bring in our guests. In Houston, we have Bob Kavanagh. He's an energy and oil analyst and an industry veteran. In Berlin, we have Thomas O'Donnell. He is an energy and geopolitical analyst and also a consultant on global energy systems. And also in Houston is Josh Young. He's the chief investment officer of Bison Interests. That's an investment firm focused on publicly traded oil and gas companies. A warm welcome to you all, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us today on Inside Story. There's obviously a big difference between crude oil, which we've been just looking at the price of, and what you're actually paying at the pump in terms of prices. What is actually to blame for the high prices that we're seeing? Thomas, is it about refining or supply or both? It seems to me potentially both. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And it also, you know, depends week to week, month to month. Um, the United States is running at a very high capacity with the refineries. As your story pointed out, the refining capacity is down, but the utilization is basically maxed out, 94, 97% recently. Um, but China, on the other hand, recently has been running the refineries at, you know, something like uh, a third below max uh, capacity. Um, so there is a shortage of refineries in the world for what we have to do. And when some are offline, like now in China, or for example, look, Venezuela has a couple of the world's largest refineries, but they've been offline for a long time. What about Iran? Similarly. Mm -hmm. So that is a problem. But supply of crude is sort of uh, the baseline problem here that's going to continue into the future. Uh, and it, that's wrong to ignore that. If the United States wasn't releasing a million barrels a day now from the strategic reserve, we'd certainly have problems. Well, Thomas, you mentioned the strategic petroleum reserves there. The U.S. and their allies have released these to try to cap the huge rise we've seen in fuel prices. Uh, Josh, let me ask, do you think that's made much of a difference, especially because we're mostly talking about crude here? Yeah, so uh, the the SPR release has made a big difference in the sense that the market's very tight, and um, you know I, I agree that that there is this sort of combination in the short term of a refining uh, crunch as well as a oil supply crunch, uh, and and so what we've seen with China um, having reduced their uh, refined product exports as well as Russia having temporarily reduced. Uh, substantially their exports and now uh, they're starting to export more um what we what we saw was a we, we saw a tight a tight market for refining but oil would have been i mean with where demand is right now even with the refining crunch oil prices might have been much much higher if the spr wasn't mm -hmm. being released right now well, at this point, I want to take a look at a graph because U.S. President Joe Biden has accused refineries of raking in huge profits during a time of war, as we've referred to. Now, the price difference between a barrel of crude and the petroleum products refined from it is called a crack spread. So looking at this graph, that's the refining margin, really. Now, usually it's just over, what, $10 a barrel, but it's jumped to over $55 a barrel. And I was looking at some numbers from BP. Their refining marker margin is up from $7.7 .7 a barrel to 35.7 over the past year. Let me ask you then, Bob, what do you think has driven that huge margin increase? Is this just down to refining capacity? It's, it's 
like our other guests have, have said, it's really uh, just a complete global market upset hmm. that is, is going on right now where you've got increasing demand after the pandemic. The U.S. and other oil, oil industries uh, uh, recovering uh, after the, the fall during the pandemic. And then all of the transportation issues. In, in the U.S., we have huge transportation issues. One of the reasons is the refineries on the Gulf Coast, a lot of those uh, can only process, only refine heavy crudes. And since we're not importing heavy crudes from like Venezuela or, or bunker fuel or gasoline for, from Russia, it causes all kinds of upsets and keeps the, that crack spread very, very wide. Uh, that will eventually come down. And the thing, the thing that most people don't really realize about the oil and gas industry is that it is very competitive. And so if someone is, is price gouging, so to speak, somebody's going to step into that space at a, at a lower price if they can. Hmm. So it, it's, a, it's a market upset. It will eventually stabilize. But right now, there's so much going on with refinery capacity, with, uh, with supply upset, and the boycotts of, uh, that was mentioned earlier out of Iran and Venezuela all causing these problems at the same time. Well, given the market upset we're seeing now, why not make the most of the situation, given the margins, and, and increase refining output? I see a number of U.S. refining companies are already doing that, but others are already operating at, what, 90%, potentially going up to 95% over the rest of the summer. Uh, Josh, in your mind, are they taking advantage of the situation? Uh, absolutely not. So uh, the, the spike that we saw in refining margins was directly correlated with the uh, reduction in utilization of Chinese and Russian refiners. Mm -hmm. And in particular, when we saw almost a million barrels a day of Russian refined product exports fall off, that's where we saw these uh, margins go up a lot. So, so what is interesting is that U.S. refiners are actually being good actors and they've moved up their utilization. They're taking some risks in doing this. Mm -hmm. They're moved up their utilization from 90 to 95%. So I think they're actually doing the right thing. And it does show that refining capacity is tight, but the cause of it is not U.S. or European refiners price gouging, it's the opposite. They're, they're doing what they can, is that there is sort of limited refining capacity, and some of it, particularly in Russia and China, has been offline. Uh, Thomas, what would it take to scale up refining capacity here? Well, um, if you're going to do it in the United States, you're going to have to expand existing refineries or build new ones. That's a little bit doubtful, but uh, you know, there's a whole Caribbean region. There's the issue of Venezuela, and I know the administration, United States administration, is working on trying to get the Maduro administration to make some democratic concessions to legitimize raising, you know, lifting some sanctions mm. and getting production going, uh, and perhaps doing something with the refineries. I mean, there's a huge potential there, and uh, it's, I mean, it's not only coming off of COVID and as uh, uh, Bob pointed out and Josh both, all the problems of adjusting. It's also this war in Ukraine. So it's a very funny situation. It's a short term that's very volatile and very uncertain, both in crude and in refined products. But if you go out three years or so or more, I would say, um, I mean, this is a geostrategic judgment. The West and their allies in Asia, Japan, Taiwan, and so forth, are going to take turn uh, Russia from a first world sort of, I'm sorry, from sort of an energy superpower in oil and gas to sort of a second rate player. That's exactly what Fadi Barol, the head of the IEA, said just yesterday uh, at a meeting. Going forward, after a few years, Russia will be reduced to 
a minor you know, player, a second ranked player. And that means there's gonna be huge possibilities for developing oil, new crude development, new, new fields, but also new refining capacity. Russia was supplying two and a half million barrels a day of refined diesel to Northern Europe. That's all gonna go away. Mm. And they can't just send that to Asia, that much oil. Some of it they can, but um, there's gonna be a big change. But in the meantime, who knows? There's gonna be a recession. There, uh, probably, and there's other problems. So short term, it's a little iffy, it's very volatile, but longer term, there's gonna be growth in the industry. There has to be. Well, let's then talk a little bit more about the impact of the Ukraine war. I believe, Bob, you need specific Russian products also to actually run some specific types of refineries. And as you alluded to there, you obviously need specific types of crude to then efficiently produce certain things, diesel, for example. Now, we've mentioned Venezuela, the sanctions on Iran as well. And given that we've seen some bottlenecks around OPEC plus production, uh, do you think that Russian sanctions have really contributed to the crunch that we're seeing? Oh, I think I think it, it really has. I mean, I, I don't disagree with the with those those uh, cut, cutting off uh, Russian crude but to, to punish Putin for attacking Ukraine. But it does cause a huge upset. You know, we were in back in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s in the States, a lot of refineries were built or, or modified to handle heavy crudes because that was primarily what was being produced in the U.S. After the, the horizontal, uh, unconventional drilling started back in the mid-2000s, 2007, 2008, that crude is a light, sweet crude that the Gulf Coast refineries can't handle. Mm. So under the Obama administration, we began being able to export again. So we're actually exporting light sweet, uh, light sweet crude and importing heavy crude that the refineries can handle. So the, the solution to that obviously is to, to, to build new refining capacity or to modify back to where we can handle the, the higher, uh, higher gravity crudes. But that is part of the issue of having to move. We're moving, we're exporting and importing uh, refined product and we're importing and exporting crude. Mm -hmm. Because it, all oil is not equal, it has to match the facility that is being shipped to. Well, then, just looking in terms of the margins of the prices that we're seeing, partly due to the Ukraine war, refined oil products have risen what between thirty and nearly one hundred and forty percent since Russia invaded Ukraine back in in February. Now, that's compared to less than a fifteen percent increase for a barrel of crude. Josh, do you think that we should expect that margin to increase even further as the war drags on? No, no. I think I think it's uh, it's already started to compress. Mm -hmm. uh, so crack spreads, I think, got over sixty. I think they might have even gotten over seventy very briefly, which was a seventy dollar per barrel margin uh, for refineries and refined products versus the input of crude. Um, it's already down below fifty. Um, I think we might be getting to forty or so uh, recently. And so I think I think that there there is this trend, which is as Russian um, refined product exports are back up, and as Chinese uh, teapot refineries ramp back up as well, and as their export quotas are increased, um, I, I expect more sort of normalization, uh, compressed refining margins, and potentially higher oil prices as more oil is consumed in refining uh, to then deliver these oil products. And just to explain to our viewers, the teapot refineries you're talking about in China are the non-state um, refineries that, that exist there. I, I do want to talk about China because it's currently, what, the world's second largest refiner, but potentially going to become the largest very soon. But 
from the figures, it really doesn't like to export its products. So last year, according to its own customs agency, it, it shipped about 1.21 million barrels a day of refined fuel. So fuel oil, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. That's what, 7% of its total refining capacity? And now it's been cutting exports even further. Thomas, why is it doing that, given the state of, of the world economy? Well, you know, if they've got a market for it at home, you know, why would you, generally speaking, why would you export uh, refined products uh, if you have a market for it at home? Um, I know I think things are a little bit complicated right now. Um, uh, it, in China, you know, everybody thought that they were recovering and then they went through this whole series of lockdowns again. So now you have a situation where, um, you know, everybody expects a recession, so demand is going to soften. So that should ease all this stuff out, okay? Uh, that should ease the demand out. But at the same time, China's coming off of these lockdowns and there's gonna be some expansion there. So even though you're kind of going to a recession, you're gonna have some expansion in China and it's a complicated situation. Um, uh, I wouldn't expect China to export, you know, what anything that's not surplus. Um, what I wish they would do is uh, used more of the refining capacity so they could have kept uh, exporting during this last COVID shutdown, but that isn't what they did. Um, Bob, you're sitting in Houston. How do you think the U.S. is viewing the limit that China has put on its, on its refined oil exports? Is Biden keen to see that increase? Well, I, I think in, in the States, we're the industry anyway. The industry believes this is going to work through over the next couple of years. For, for instance, I was looking at the, the NYMEX WTI crude curve this morning. You know, we're at like $94, $95 a barrel in the near month. In December of 23, it's, it's $77. So it's almost $20 less in, in two years out. So the expectation is this is going to stabilize. I think where we're focused, I believe that what the industry talks about anyway, is being able to import more crudes that Venezuela is close to be, being, and that's another two and a half million barrels a day. It won't come up immediately, but it'll help. And that helps our refining capacity stay full with the, with the heavy crude that comes from Venezuela. Uh, China, I think, is using the, their refinery capacity like they use everything else in their economy as a weapon against uh, countries like the US and the, and the, the, the EU. And I think that's, um, that's got to be something that we consider. Well, given the state of play, let's look at where we go from here then, given the current situation. So in order for oil refining margins to drop and for prices to come down, there needs to be more capacity. And for that, you obviously need investment. Should we be expecting fresh investment in oil refining, given the margins? Josh, would you be encouraging people to invest in this? Yeah, so I think that the challenge for refining in the U.S. is more related to uh, environmental regulations and permitting than it is a desire to expand. Uh, so Exxon has been expanding refineries here to uh, better process uh, light sweet crude coming from um, coming from shale in, in West Texas. And, uh, you know, they've had all kinds of issues and there's just kind of this tremendous uh, sort of regulatory and tax burden. Uh, one, one thing I do want to address, the, the, the status of the, the forward curve, I think it, there's, a, there's a lot of misconceptions around it, and uh, it being in backwardation, so oil being $100 right now and $70 two years from now, is actually an indication of a very tight oil market. And 
it does, it incentivizes oil to get pulled out of storage right now. And historically, when it's been in that sort of circumstance, oil prices have actually gone up over time, not down. So, so when you look at the incentives, there, there is an incentive to invest both in upstream as well as in refining. Um, and what we're seeing is that there's a very tight market. There's a lot of uh, tightness in, in the service capacity to be able to do these expansions, but specifically for refining, specifically in the US, there are huge regulations and taxes that get in the way. Well, given that we are talking about this green transition and President Biden has obviously said he wants to focus on renewables, and I see a number of the refineries that have gone offline are actually switching further towards biofuels. Thomas, do you see that trend continuing or will there be some kind of a, a shift given the current state of affairs? Well, I think ever since the, the ethanol revolution, which wasn't a revolution after all, there was never cellulastic ethanol. Um, I think the idea of biofuels per se is, uh, you know, really not going to take off. Um, what everybody looks at is electric vehicles. Hmm. Now, uh, if you look at, I think we need a dose of reality here. And there was a, a big problem, let's say the last decade, but also even during Corona of uh, sort of official optimism or something. Um, you know, 94% of everything that moves here in Germany Germany's supposed to be one of the greenest countries around, if you listen to the government. But 94% of everything that moves, moves on oil distillates. And, you know, it's about the same in the United States, everywhere in the world. You can look at how many electric car uh, plants have been built in the world and how many they're producing. I mean, I haven't looked at it really close in a, in a year or two. But if you look at the rate of increase that you expect, just from the expansion of population and wealth in China and India and Africa, you see how many more cars, how many more vehicles will be on the road. You'll be lucky if uh, electric cars can take up that those new cars, much less the whole base of the continuing base of uh, uh, oil-fueled cars that are still out there. So oil companies were under a lot of pressure to look like they're doing everything to transform to some new world, but the vehicles simply aren't there. The, the uh, electric vehicles aren't there. There's major problems with batteries and those supply chains. And somehow this has to be balanced, that people can work on that without scaring, scaring the wits out of you know, the companies and shaming the companies into not investing. And that's what happened the last few years. By not investing, I mean, there was also corona, but by not investing, now we're stuck. And you'll see OPEC has been raising their quota. Biden asked them to raise their quota. Well, certain sense, it doesn't do any good. They can't make, meet their quota. They're a couple million barrels behind in what they're supposed to have produced over the last several months. Mm. So a lot of investments are needed and a stable situation, a more realistic, pragmatic policy here. Well, in terms of pragmatic policy, we're talking also about very specific kinds of distillates and demand for those, right? So, Bob, let me ask you about the trade-off that exists for refiners. By my understanding, let's say there's a shortage of diesel, like we're seeing now. Um, you rejig things to produce more diesel, that means you end up producing potentially less jet fuel. And then air travel's also rebounding post-pandemic. So trying to then produce both reduces the output of petrol. What should be the focus here in your mind? Well, I, I think what you said is, is, is correct. Also, the, the challenge that we have in the States is getting different fuels to different parts of the country. For, for instance, we, we import gasoline into California 
because it, because it's, it's easier to, to import it in rather than shipping it from the Gulf Coast because of the transportation issues. And so there's all these different different issues that we have to set to, to deal with in terms of getting the right fuel in the right place. Yeah. And I agree with Thomas on the whole electric vehicle uh, issue. I don't think we can replace uh, the, the, the petrol powered uh, vehicles with uh, electric vehicles fast enough, especially with the manufacturing battery issues, the recycling of those batteries. And, and the, we haven't talked about the power grid. The power grid is another gigantic challenge, especially right now in Texas. Yeah. And so with all those different things floating around, the most important thing is to keep commerce moving, which is primarily jet fuel, diesel, and gasoline. Mm -hmm. Well, if oil refineries in the U.S. aren't necessarily coming back online, we're not necessarily seeing the investment that's required to do that. I see more refineries are there being built in the Middle East and Asia. Uh, Josh, very briefly, how soon do you think that could make a difference? Yeah, so so there are there are projects uh, ongoing. Um, I think the bigger thing is just the ramp up in the independent refineries in China, the teapots, as well as uh, ramp up in Russian refined product exports. And so between the two of those, um, it does look like refining the refining market is coming into balance in the short term. Um, I'm not sure there's going to be a balance over the next few years. I think there's probably insufficient refining capacity right now that's reliable relative to the likely demand increase. I, I agree with the other uh, panelists. I, I, I don't see the electric uh, vehicle transition uh, coming on fast enough to be able to address this uh, shortage of oil oil and refined uh, capacity. So I, I think it makes sense to be considering expanding additional refining capacity, even though this short-term sort of super squeeze in refining margins is starting to dissipate. Clearly something that isn't going to be resolved anytime soon. Well, thank you to all of our guests, Bob Kavner, Thomas O'Donnell, and Josh Young. Well, that's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Calvin Ng, Usama Maloney, Tong Yin and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Alvaro Galan. The program was edited by Anna Savage, Lin Nguyen, and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Thursday. Mm -hmm.